morning. How y'all doing today? Good. Well, my name is Ryan, lead pastor here at Crossroads. Let me welcome everybody to the room. If you're on the atrium, thank you for enjoying the sunshine. If you're at home, still in bed, enjoying a cup of coffee, that's wonderful. It's good to be connecting with one another. If you're a guest today, if this is your very first time here, thanks for having the courage to show up. Thanks for being here today. I know going into a, a religious setting, a church, if that's something you haven't done in a while, can be pretty, pretty scary. So thank you for your courage. Hopefully, uh, you'll find the experience warm, welcoming, and maybe a little fun, just as the program says. That's one of our values is fun. So it's good to have everybody with us today. Uh, listen, we've got so much happening. <laughs> We're generally not much of a monastic environment. I'm a little, I'm a little lost here. Would you uh, welcome our monks to the stage? I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll scooch over a little bit here. Um, I'm not going to lie. This is a little creepy. At least for me it is. I don't know. Uh, is there something I can do for you two? Who, who do we have? Hi, I'm Jamie. And I'm Patty. What are you? Wait, wait. No, I'm Patty. Oh, and I'm Jamie. What? We don't even have, like, we literally don't even, don't even have microphones to the two of you. We don't know what you're, can I get a microphone to them, Autumn? Like, I don't, we, we did not, quite literally did not have this in the, can, all right. There's, is this okay? This one here? Are you going to bring up, Autumn's going to bring up a, a, another one so we can have two. Um, so in case you all don't know, uh, this is Patty and Jamie, and um, I'm not, turn it on. All right, I'll turn it on. Let's see if I can figure this out. Um, I, I know, but there's a power button right there. I, this is beyond my pay grade. I haven't gone through this training yet. I don't know. We'll just have to share that one there. Well, it is. I know, but I can't get it. I'm telling you, we had no idea we were doing this. Okay, they'll share. And um, this is, this is, see, this is the, this is that value of fun around here. So I'm going to give that there. I don't know. Dennis Anderson, not in a monk costume. Um, okay. So we have, we have Patty and Jamie, not Jamie and Patty, but Patty and Jamie here. Um, what exactly are you doing here right now? And this does not count against my talk time. All right, everybody? And I'm going to tell you, it's a long one to begin with. All right? So. So the reason we are here is because I get called Jamie all the time. And she gets called Patty. So we just wanted you to know who we were. And I run the Adventure Camps for Kids. And I run the Early Learning Center. Okay. So, so Pat, that's good. Yeah, give him a big hand. So. Now, both of you are fairly new to the Crossroads community. Patty, when did you start in your role here? January 24th. January 24th. And Jamie? July 7th. July 7th. So both of you less than a year. And so elementary programming, preschool programming. Um, speaking of that, like we've got something pretty fantastic coming up here uh, with, and there's a display out in the lobby. So Walk us through, like, there's a coloring contest going on, I guess, and camp starting, and, and one week of camp actually involves the preschool, so give us a little, like, what's happening with camp? Do I really need to? You just set it off. I don't know. Is, what am I missing? <laughs> what am I missing? <laughs> if you want to volunteer for Adventure Camp, volunteers are out, sign up is out there. If you want kids jumping into Adventure Camp this summer, you can sign up out there, too. Nice. And the first week of camp, we're offering um, from three years old and up, as long as they're potty trained, they get to join in all the camp fun that awesome. first week. And it's a little different than the past, so a lot of these folks have been around for camp in the past. How's, it, how's the whole summer different? How's that first week different? So the first week, we're accepting volunteers, and we have a half-day camp. The rest of the summer is paid staff, and it's full-day camps for kids kid venture camps. Yeah, so like kiddos that need summer care, things like that. What's going on with preschool? And with preschool, we're actively opening classrooms. Right now we have two classrooms open Monday through Friday. We have a crew of four teachers. We're looking at about 20 children enrolled right now. 
So we're just looking to open up more and more rooms, and the next room to open is going to be a baby room. Awesome. And you have a wait list. And we have a wait list. We have a yes, wait list. So we we're, we're, we're actively hiring. In we that are world actively too, hiring, so. and we can take all the kids off the wait list as long as we find some really great qualified teachers. So if you know anybody or one of you is interested in a position, let me know. All right. And for the kids, there's a, there's a, I saw a sign for coloring contest. How do they get involved, and what's the prize? for the coloring contest. The prize is actually a survival kit for camp. <laughs> Sounds pretty exciting, Maybe we need one of those it? for the volunteers. Yeah. They yeah. could do it as well. And the coloring contest, all you have to do is grab a sheet, bring it back next week, and then Ryan will be the judge. Oh, yeah. Don't put that on me, Ricky Bobby. It's on that. him. It's on him. Uh -uh. No way. Well, let's give Patty and Jamie a great big hand. Thank you. All right. Well, yeah, just, just how we practiced it right there. So that's good. That's good. Wow. Wonderful. Crazy monks. That's great. What was I, what was I saying? What are we, so we're in a series, Keeping Hope Alive, right? We're in a series. And the idea behind this series is uh, part of the Christian faith is this statement that Jesus lives, that Jesus is alive. And on Easter, we talked about that, and I unpacked this idea that just... It doesn't mean anything if that life doesn't flow through followers, right? If on that first Easter nobody believed <laughs> and nobody changed their lives, it wouldn't have mattered. Jesus could be walking around right now having a burger, and it doesn't matter, right? It just doesn't matter if we're not living out the way of Jesus, the peacemaking path of Jesus, and that's what we've been kind of talking about. So uh, let, let, let me ask you this question. Have you ever kind of, have you ever gone to work right? Or, or you've gone to school, or you've gone into an environment where there might be colleagues or friends, <clears throat> and you're finding that on that day, it's the same exact day of the year, you're in the same space, whether it's the classroom or work or whatever it might be, but you realize that you and maybe a friend or a colleague, you're experiencing the day very differently. So like they're having a terrible day, but you're having a great day. It's the same day, right? So if we were to ask the room, hey, how's your day today? Some people would be like, worst day in my life. Worst, I came and I was hoping Ryan wasn't talking. It's terrible, <laughs> right? And then some would be like, oh, it's the best day of my life, right? Have you ever had that experience? Raise your hand up nice and high. Like that kind of contradicting moment. But here's the thing. Our world is filled with a variety of those contradicting experiences, Right? And here's what's fascinating about that moment, right, where, where two people in the room, a third person walks in and say, how's the day going? And like simultaneously, someone says, awesome, and somebody says, terrible. So who's the liar? Right, who's lying there? Well, nobody is, because these contradictory experiences, the experiences that contradict one another, they're all true. And the human experience is, is filled with all of these moments, all of these contradictions, that it's, it might seem, if we're just going to try and rationalize it, that somebody's telling the truth and somebody's telling the lie, how's your day today, right? But no, they're all real. They're all genuine. Any Dave Matthews Band fans in the room? You can raise your hand. I know it's Colorado. Y'all have liked Dave Matthews for a long time around here. Don't be lying to me and telling you you don't, right? So Dave has a song, right? Dave, he has this song called Funny the Way It Is, if you've ever heard it. If you haven't, Spotify, go listen to it. And like the chorus says, uh, or the, the verse, the first verse, he talks about sitting outside and it's this beautiful day and he's soaking it in and all of a sudden sirens go by and he says, somebody's house is burning on a beautiful day like today, right? It's that contradiction. And the chorus says, funny the way it is, if you think about it, somebody's going hungry and somebody else is eating out. He says, funny the way it is, it's not right or wrong, somebody's heart is broken and it becomes your favorite song. I love that lyric of that, because it's so true, right? We listen to these songs about pain and hurt and loss, and we're like, I love that song. And it's like somebody pouring out the worst day of their life. Well, I love that song. And what is music, right? What is a song, right? A song is poetry set to music poetry set to music. And poetry bears witnesses to the truth. It bears a witness to the truth of these contradictory experiences in our lives. They bear witness to the real around us. So there's a contradiction of, of a world that is filled with justice on one hand, but injustice on the other hand. 
There's a day, there's a life, there's a moment, there's an experience that's filled with beauty, yet deep grief and sorrow. Yesterday, there was a, a celebration of life here in the building. And it was filled with great beauty as we saw like our church come around and, and support another church who didn't have the space. And, and all these volunteers came and made this beautiful moment happen. But it was also a terrible moment. It was filled with grief. And that is the human condition, that we can in the same moment suffer but also be brought intense peace. And poetry brings us into those spaces, right? I asked a poet this week, I called this poet and I said, talk to me about poetry, right? Tell me about it. And here's some things that this poet said. They said, it wants to make a matter of record. Like poetry wants to make a matter of record. It wants to say something that needs to be said, put it on record, and this thing can be related over time and across boundaries. They said that poetry reaches for meaning. It's a a meaning-making exercise. It's looking at the contradictions in our world. It's looking at the pain. It's looking at the joys. And it's trying to find and make and create meaning in it. It's a search for it. And here's what's interesting. Sometimes it's not, it takes more than one poem, right? They said to me, sometimes it's an anthology of poetry that can really capture the heart, that can capture what that poet is trying to do. It's a process of working out meaning over time. And poetry uses language to do this. It uses images. I love this. They said it used, poetry uses images to break the spell of the monotony of our usual way of processing. Right? Our usual way of processing the world just through our eyes and through our ears. But poetry brings us into a deep space where we have to feel their experience of the poet. We have to slow down it brings about to us like the eternal consequences of whatever is being brought to record. I'd like to read a poem for you this morning. This poem was written uh, by a woman named Natalie Diaz. And I think Natalie brings us this really amazing picture of what poetry can do and, and what, it, what it means to bear witness to an injustice, what it means to draw you into an experience that might not be Yours. So Natalie Diaz was born in uh, the Fort Mojave Indian Villages in Needles, California. Uh, she is Mojave. She's an enrolled member of the Gila River Indian community. This is her experience, right? So she's the author of a, po- of a collection of poems co- uh, called Post-Colonial Love Poem. She won the Pulitzer Prize for this poetry that she wrote. Um, she wrote another piece called When My Brother Was an Aztec. And this piece was described by a New York Times reviewer uh, as ambitious and beautiful, right? This is something that's out there in the poetry world, right? Diaz lives in, a Mojave, in the Mojave Valley, Arizona, uh, where she continues to work with the last speakers of Mojave, and she directs a language revitalization program, right? So the poem I want to read to you from her, you got to even slow down to get the title of it, all right? By the way, um, let me just say this right now. This is either going to be the boringest talk you have ever heard in your life, or you're going to love it. There's no in-between. Because to get where I'm going, we got we to gotta take the long route today, okay? We got to take the long route. So, so hang in there with me, and I hope your, your reservation wasn't for 1130, okay? That's all I'm going to... Okay, so here we go. So this is the title of the poem. Abecedarian requiring further examination of Anglican seraphim subjugation of a wild Indian reservation. This is not a Pentecostal church. Please don't talk to me. No, I just know she said. <laughs> they said, say it again. I'll say it again. All right, here it is. Abecedarian, which means the type of poem that every line starts with a letter of the alphabet. So it works through all the letters of the alphabet. Requiring further examination of Anglican seraphim. Seraphim is a word that refers to like angelic beings. Subjugation. We know what that word means. Of a wild Indian reservation. All right, so check it out. Listen, maybe close your eyes. Listen to the poem. Angels don't come to the reservation. Bats, maybe, or owls, boxy modeled things. Coyotes, too. They all mean the same thing. Death. And death eats angels, I guess, because I haven't seen an angel fly through this valley ever. Gabriel? Never heard of him. Know a guy named Gabe, though. He came through here one powwow and stayed. Typical. Indian. Sure, he had wings. Jailbird that he is. He flies around in stolen cars. Wherever he stops, 
kids grow like gourds from women's bellies. Like I said, no Indian I've ever heard of has ever been or seen an angel. Maybe in a Christmas pageant or something. Nazarene Church holds one every December, organized by Pastor John's wife. It's no wonder Pastor John's son is the angel. Everyone knows angels are white. Quit bothering with angels, I say. They're no good for Indians. Remember what happened last time? Some white god came floating across the ocean. Truth is there may be angels, but if there are angels up there, living on clouds or sitting on thrones across the sea wearing velvet robes and golden rings, drinking whiskey from silver cups. We're better off if they stay rich and fat and ugly and exactly where they are in their own distant heavens. You better hope you never see angels on the res. If you do, they'll be marching you off to Zion or Oklahoma, or some other hell they've mapped out for us. Wow. Like, that's poetry, right? Like, that's a lived experience brought out in words that is challenging. And man, poetry can be difficult and painful. (laughs) Right? It can be difficult and it can be painful because poetry reveals the gaps in reality. Like your lived experience, my lived experience is different from the poet's, and the poet shines a light on that gap. And that gap is where meaning has to come to bear. That gap is where meaning is made. When we start to bring our reason and our understanding as to why does that gap exist, why does that experience of that poet have very little resonation in my heart, in my life, right? Why does my lived experience not at all that way? Why is my history different than their history. There's a gap there. And poetry brings us into that gap and and calls us to experience the world differently, to experience the world of the poet. It's like the poet is pleading to the reader, stop, slow down. This isn't going to be easy. One thing I love about that poem is that the title is so difficult. (laughs) You have to stop and slow down just to go, what in the world is this title? And that's what the poet does. It's like, you got to slow down. Because if we don't slow down, we'll never understand what isn't understandable. (laughs) Like, if we don't slow down to listen, to understand, to pause, to reflect, we'll never be able to get those things that right now we just think are just beyond our ability. Poetry offers us this moment to sit with really difficult subjects, to let them transform us. It gives us an opportunity to inhabit another person's telling of reality, another person's story. Here's the thing. Prophets are poets. Prophets are poets. And poets are prophets. The Christian scripture, the the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is filled with a group of, of writings called prophets. And sometimes we think of prophets as fortune tellers. They're gonna tell us the future. That's not what prophecy is at all. Prophecy is a bearing witness to a a problem, giving voice to the the pain of the divine in the world, right? And and a prophet bears witness to the problem, to the circumstance. And just like in any poem, any bit of poetry that bears witness to something, there's always a judgment that follows the bearing witness. And that language of poetry, right? We would never, we would recognize that there's always a literal reality behind the poem, But we know that there's a hybrid of the literal and the figurative in poetry, in that language. Today, I want to look at one of those poets as we understand what does hope demand of us to keep it alive. And we have to spend a lot of time here before we jump into this poet, this poet or prophet, because there's been a long history of misuse and abuse of the voice of the poet. And if we aren't careful, we can read the poet and look at it for like a literal understanding of certain things, and then we can create a God that's very monstrous. And so I want to actually take all this time to set the stage for the power of poetry, because we're getting ready to read poetry. Now, here's the problem. This is not poetry written in English. So you're like, well, it doesn't rhyme. It's not a poem. (laughs) It's written in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew. 
but it's nonetheless serving that same function as literature. And so what I want to do is say, what is some wisdom that this prophet named Amos, we have this prophetic book called Amos, which is a collection of poems written in Amos's name, written kind of like according to what he would have said. It was written long after his life, this collection of writings. And I want to ask, like, what, does, what, what can we learn about what hope demands from this prophetic voice? Because Amos represents a thread that you can find all throughout these different texts that we have in our collection of writings that we call the Bible. So Amos was this guy who lived about nine miles south of Jerusalem. And he, he was a sheep herder. That's what his profession was. I imagine, given his writing, that he had faced in his life some deep sense of injustice, some deep oppression, or he had seen it firsthand because the, 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 the visceral reality that he has, the anger that he has, the passion that he has for what's happening in the world would, would draw me to conclude that his life experience has been one that was, that there was suffering at the hands of someone else, someone maybe or maybe he was part of a, an upper middle class of the time, being a sheep herder, and he had some wealth, and he saw like his fellows treating and oppressing. And so he gives voice to the reality of the problem of this. And what's interesting is Amos, while he lived in the south, there were two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Jerusalem, Judah was the southern kingdom. Israel was the northern kingdom. And he traveled through Jerusalem. He went all the way up to the northern kingdom, and he did most of his work standing in the middle of the northern kingdom where he didn't grow up. But he spoke kind of, he, he prophesied, he gave this poetry, he gave the indictment not simply to the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria, but he gave it to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. It was like, everybody's in this. <laughs> everybody's going to get it. And the poetry of Amos, just like the poetry of Natalie Diaz, brings about his conviction, his experiences, his anger, his understanding of how the world works. And it's rich with imagery, and it's filled with his own pain, his own sorrow, his own anger, and his own beliefs. So it's important that we start, before we even get to the text, like, well, what did Amos believe? What did Amos believe? First of all, we have to recognize that Amos, a, a person who lived in the... 8th century, right, believed like everybody else in the 8th century, <laughs> okay? Like his beliefs were not so crazy and out there indifferent. He believed like everybody else in the ancient Near East certain things. Some of the common beliefs that we know that were held in the ancient Near East long before Amos come to us from these collections of writings that we have from other areas in ancient Mesopotamia, so how many of you are like Bible people? You've been around a long time. You've heard the word Amorites. Anybody ever heard the word Amorites? They're one of the ites that, that the Jews did not like, right? The people who wrote the Bible did not fans of the Amorites, right? So there's an ancient city, right, called Mari. And we, we found this collection of letters. They're called the Mari letters. And they come from about 1,000 years before Amos ever walked on the scene. So just think about that, 1,000 years before Amos probably 300 years, 400 years before like any historical exodus would have taken place. This is old stuff, right? Old stuff. And these letters tell us a couple things about beliefs in the ancient Near East, right? Every nation had their own god or gods, and they accepted that every other nation had their own gods or gods. And these, these gods were represented by prophets or oracles they have visions and dreams. So the language that we see in the prophetic world is no different than what we... It's, it's unique in a sense, but it's not different language than what we have in the rest of the ancient Near East, of the neighboring communities. This was a very common way in which the divine was thought about and considered. And then, here's what's other thing. We find these letters that tell us that the national god, whatever that god, whoever that god was, was always involved in war and was always involved in either saving their people or abandoning their people. Right, so that is a very, very typical language. Then we can go back even further to some Egyptian wisdom literature that we have. And this Egyptian wisdom literature comes from about 2025 BCE. So let's just call that 4,000 years ago. 4,000 years ago. So three to 500 years before the, Amar the Mari letters, right? And, and we see some really fascinating things that, that oftentimes in our faith, we think, oh, this, we're just, this, we were the only people to ever think about justice. 2,000 years before Amos, okay? 2,000 years. 
we see that morality, like how we treat one another in these Egyptian wisdom texts, that there's a tension between religious practices and morality, and that morality was always more important than religious practices. Here's what one of the texts says. Make firm your place, i.e. the grave in Egyptian divine language. Make firm your place with uprightness and just dealing, for it is on that which their hearts rely, the people, right? More acceptable is a loaf of the upright than the ox of the wrongdoer. So if you're, if you're creating your like, place to go in the grave, right, and you're setting up gifts for the gods, right, what this is saying is, listen, bring a loaf from an upright heart, not an ox from a wrongdoer, because the, the gods don't care about the ox from the wrongdoer. It's interested in the heart, right? Another piece of writing says this, all the ambulance, carved images, figures are insufficient and meaningless. Is it by sacrificing and cleaving asunder to the crocodile? Right? So in ancient, in ancient Egyptian, you'd worship the crocodile, right? Is it by doing that? Is it by slaying and roasting to the lion? Is it by pouring libations? Those would have been like uh, drink offerings or sacrifices you would pour over an altar. Is it by pouring libations uh, and sacrificing to the god Ptah? He says, why, why do you give it to him? It doesn't suffice for him. It's misery, sadness that you give it to him. Why? Because there's injustice around. That's the implication. Like, you, all your religious practices to this God that you revere mean nothing. Remember, this is 2,000 years before Amos. This is the heart of this culture, right? And we also see something really powerful that we see all throughout, like, like the Hebrew Bible and the prophetic writings, is that the violation of moral laws, the way we treat one another, was caused for the destruction of a nation, Right, so if you're familiar with the text of the Old Testament, you know that we have all these prophetic writings. And they talk about how God is going to punish and exile the, 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 the people, that God is going to destroy Jerusalem. We know that this happened. We know that we have the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722. We have a destruction of the southern kingdom in 586. There's exiles, and it's attributed to God doing this. And why is it? Because they've abandoned their morality. And so sometimes we think, oh, this is what God does. This is how God works. And so when bad things happen in our culture, you have very well-loving, I'm sure, meaningful Christians saying, this is because of the sin of America, or whatever it might be. But here's the thing. like That notion... Was, was all over the ancient. It's just the way pre-enlightenment minds worked, the way they made meaning of the world. So we have these Assyrian documents. They're called the Esarhaddon texts, right? And they describe the moral decay of the Babylonian culture, right? And the Babylonians are the ones that came and destroyed right, the Israelites, right? But it describes the decay. And here's what it says. You'd think this was right out of the Hebrew prophets, but it's not. It says, they were oppressing the weak and the poor and putting them into the power of the mighty, there was oppression and acceptance of bribes within the city daily without ceasing. They were robbing each other's property. The son was cursing his father in the street. Then the god, and Lil or Marduk, depending upon, you know, if you were Babylonian or Syrian, the god became angry. He planned to overwhelm the land and to destroy its people. We have another document called Advice to the Prince, right? So how you should behave if you're the leader. And this is what it says. If a king does not heed justice, his people will fall into anarchy and his land will be devastated. If citizens of Nippur are brought, Nippur was the capital, if citizens of Nippur are brought before him for judgment and he accepts bribes and treats them with, with injustice, and Lil, the lord of the lands, will bring a foreign army against him. Amos believed, just like everybody else, <laughs> Because he had seen empires come and go, and the only explanation that he was handed down in his culture and his tradition was they acted unjustly, their gods came and punished them. So that's, that's not a unique belief. So we just have to recognize that's the belief. That's how they thought about natural disasters. That was the prevailing thought. And, and Amos also believed that Israel had a, a responsibility because he thought of them as the chosen people of their God, Yahweh that Yahweh was the great God of all gods. We are, we are the chosen people, and that means we're to represent this God amongst the peoples. It had nothing to do, by the way, with we're the saved ones, we're the ones that get to go to heaven, we're the better ones, not at all. It was this language of adoption, this language of chosenness, that you're to represent me amongst the nations. Because in, classical, in the classical prophets, there's a thread of universal like God, salvation for the whole world, that God is going to work it out and rescue everyone. This is all throughout the prophets. It's still a part of Jewish religion. So it wasn't like, oh, we're chosen to be the best, or we're chosen to be the only ones who are saved. No, we're chosen to represent the values of this God, Yahweh, in the world. That was one of his beliefs. 
structures and systems. And Amos also believed that justice and righteousness were foundational. Like that's what held society together. Justice and righteousness. Now righteousness in the Hebrew prophets is not this idea that I don't ever make any moral mistakes. I, you know, I don't ever watch a movie I'm not supposed to or whatever it might be. I never swear when I get angry, you know, whatever. Like righteousness is about like right relationships with one another. Righteousness is about equity despite of social differences. Like that's what biblical righteousness is, prophetic righteousness. And justice is the concrete actions that restore a righteous society, that restore justice. And these two things, Amos said, are foundational, fundamental to what it means to have a society. And Amos believed deeply that his community, his nation was failing in these areas, deeply failing. And they were failing because he saw three things happening. We're going to eventually get to the text, by the way. He saw three things happening. First, he looked around and he saw all of these wealthy elites living these religiously embellished lives, lives of luxury, right in the capital of Samaria. He just saw it, and, and, and he says, that's not right. That's not right. We're not living out God's call because you have all these people that are leveraging religion, leveraging the wealth to oppress. And it's not because Amos thought that luxury was wrong or that wealth was wrong. That, that, you'll hear that all the time, too. Like, that's, no. The problem was that this luxury came from violence against the weak. <laughs> that's the issue. It's not that people were wealthy and some people had more, some people had less. That's not the issue. The issue is that what was happening was just the continual oppression of the weak, the powerless. And so he says, this is wrong. And, and, and all of a sudden, now there's just this indifference toward the distress of others. You're comfortable. You develop a whole theology around it. We're the ones that God loves because we have all this stuff. And there's this kind of repression of any notion that there's a disastrous future ahead. <laughs> that if you keep doing this, somehow your society can stay together. Second way in which he saw that this whole thing was falling apart was he saw like bribery taking place in the justice system. That people were abrogating justice through bribery. They were taking bribes. They weren't listening to it. And Amos believed that justice was God's special gift to Israel. Like he just saw this as what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to show the world what it looks like. And it should have functioned to settle disputes. It should have been used to uncover and eliminate injustices, but itself was becoming an act of injustice. And Amos believed deeply because he saw it break down that a people of God lacking a functioning system of justice was incapable of life. It wouldn't survive. He would say he saw it. He saw all the cultures around him. That's how they were destroyed. It was because of their lack of justice, their lack of morality towards one another. And then finally, one of the big things that Amos saw was that there was this misguided trust in religious practice and pilgrimages and worship services. That people thought, if I just go to the temple, if I go to the shrine, if I make my sacrifices, that's what God wants from me, and then there, I'm just going to go out and do whatever I wanted to do. Like these activities at the, the shrine centers, the cult centers, don't think of cult like we use it now, but just think of like the religious element of a society. Like the practices weren't promoting justice any longer. They were actually promoting injustice. They were being used as excuses to not care for the poor or the weak. And so here's the thing, like these places had become completely ineffectual in encountering God. In Amos' mind, he says, God's not there. God's not there. Not there. The guilty have been lulled to sleep. They have a false sense of security because they, they go through and they run all the rituals. They run all the worship services. They sacrifice all this. They pour out all the libations. And so they have this good conscience that accompanies their evil deeds. Now, come on now. Like, that's not... Western Christianity, is it? <laughs> right? I mean, we don't baptize our violence in the name of God. We've never done that. And that's what he's seeing, right? And so what he's saying is the very, the very actions that are, supposed to, <laughs> that are supposed to bring people to a space of uh, repentance or to bring people to a space of acknowledgement, like, they can't do that anymore. And here's what's fascinating. Their religious nature made it impossible for them to repent. They were so religious, there was no need to repent. They were so deceived by those religious activities that they just had, they were incapable of it. What are you talking about? We've done all the, all the cultic practices, all the religious things we're supposed to do. 
Why wouldn't Yahweh be happy with us? We've done it all. And so Amos believed, like everybody else, in his mind of antiquity, in the way in which he brought meaning into the world, that this community, if this failure continued, would come to a violent destruction. He says, that's how you explain it. That's how you explain the rise and fall of kingdoms. That's how you explain the transfer of power in this world was through this lack of morality, lack of justice. And it was always the God of the nation doing it. It was always the God of the nation who said, my people have not done what I've wanted them to do. So this was inevitable. <laughs> there was no question, right? Amos doesn't have, a, have the, a, an enlightened mind to say, is this really the nature of God? <laughs> like he doesn't have a context to go, is God really a moral monster that commits genocide and kills innocent people to prove a point? There's no framework for that, right? You're spending too much time trying to avoid being eaten by lions. <laughs> like, that, that's just the truth. Like, you don't sit around thinking and pondering about God when you're trying to figure out where you're going to eat the next day. You only start thinking about those types of things when you get certain other things under control. <laughs> so, so, like, that, it makes, it, it's perfectly acceptable to understand the literature in that way, but that doesn't mean we have to say, oh, this is how God is. We're free to recognize the poetic nature of it. And so for Amos, he holds this belief that if God destroys these houses of worship, that's actually the only way that people will find God because they think they're finding God in the houses of worship, but they're not. So the only way to prove it is to destroy the houses of worship and send people into the midst of their own pain, to send people into the midst of their own rebellion, and there find the redemptive work of the gods, of God. That's what Amos would have thought. So the destruction of religion would be the only way to end the self-deception and the justifications of injustice. So all that to say, let's look at Amos. And if we don't take that kind of time, we run the danger of, of taking these texts and, and letting them tell us things about God that that's not the point of it. And we try to take stuff from a pre-enlightenment, I mean, ain't, not even pre-enlightenment, we're talking about cultures away from us and dragging it into our post-enlightenment, Western, post-modern way of thinking. And we just have to recognize the situation, the matrix that Amos was living in. So Amos chapter 5 is the middle of the book. It's the height of it all, the height of the letter, the height of the collection of poems. And I want to read Amos 5, 7 through 15, and then 21 through 24. And it goes much faster from here on out. And everybody said amen. amen. All right, I love it. Y'all are good. Y'all are good. Okay. But I think we can read this in a healthy way now, all right? So when we put this online, we'll just skip right to this moment so people don't have to suffer through the last 20 minutes. Okay, so here's what it says. Woe to those who turn justice into wormwood. Wormwood is a, a, it's like absinthe. It's what we get, we get absinthe from. It's a poison. And they cast righteousness to the ground. Remember, those are his two key words, right? This poem is saying, hey, you, you're discarding justice. You're discarding righteousness. He says... They, they hate, those people that do that, they hate those who reprove at the gate and abhor those who speak with integrity. So the gate would be a, a space where justice would be administered. There'd be a tribal leader who would come and sit at the gate and people would bring their concerns. It was like Judge Steve Harvey. If you've watched Steve Harvey, that's kind of the more relational side of it, right? They would come and bring their cases, right? And here's the thing, like these people that distort justice, they hate those voices, they have an attitude towards them because they're doing justice. They're acting rightly. And here's the thing. Attitude always precedes action, right? It always starts with an attitude towards someone or towards something. Like, it starts with this, like, initial, like, visceral, like, when somebody says a word and you go, that's so political. Or somebody says a word and you just immediately are like, oh, I hate those people. It's our categories. It's our othering. Right? And, and, and so that's where it always starts. It always starts with our attitude. And Amos wants to show you that. Hey, it, it's not just that they're doing these things. The things that they're doing flow from a heart condition, which is why we have beautiful language about a heart of stone being turned to a heart of flesh. Right? That beautiful metaphor. And so Amos goes on, and he says, they hated those who would act with integrity or offer justice. So now Amos is going to describe the actions. This is what it looks like. He says, therefore, because you tax the destitute and exact from them levies of grain, though you have built houses of hewn stone, which would have been very uncommon, 
Very, very uncommon. Most houses would have been mud, sticks, brick, or not brick, but not hewn stone. <laughs> like the image here is you've built your mansions as you've exacted taxes from the poor and you've levied their grain. They're starving, you're building, and you planted choice vineyards. You won't drink their wine. You won't live in those houses. I love this poetry. Amos is saying those meaningful things of home building, of growing a vineyard, they are meaningless. They will produce meaningless outcomes when they're done with injustice, when they're built on an unjust spirit. You can be as wealthy as you want, but here's the thing. In Amos' mind, it's coming. (laughs) The check is going to get cashed. And then I love that he switches now to the voice of the national God, Yahweh, right? Just like anybody else would. He says, yeah, I know how many your crimes, how grievous your sins. Remember sins for me, how much you've wounded one another, (laughs) I see all the wounds that you've produced, oppressing the just, accepting bribes, turning away the needy at the gate. And then there's this beautiful little statement. He says, therefore, at this time, the wise are struck dumb, for it is an evil time. In other words, the wise say silent because there's no, they, they know there's no justification for where they are. Y'all ever been like that? You ever been confronted and then you're like wise enough to go, mm-hmm. Your kids, like you want your kids to stop what? Don't talk. Your kids don't talk back? Oh, man, what are you doing different? (laughs) Got to figure that one out. You just want them to listen to the truth. Just hear it. And if they act wisely, they receive it, and they don't say anything back. That's what Amos is saying. The wise among us listened. They accept it. It's not that they didn't speak. Amos is clearly speaking. And now we come to the dead center of this collection of poetry, like right in the middle of the book of Amos. There's a thousand and four words on one side of these these next two verses, and there's a thousand and four words after it. So this is very carefully crafted by the person who brought all this together. This is the center of it all. And you know what? Here's what it says. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. Like that's that's it. Like here it is. I'm going to lay it out for you. It's not go to church. (laughs) Seek good and not evil that you may live. It goes on and says, Then truly Yahweh, the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you claim. Right now, God isn't with you. Right now, you're not with God, right? Right now, you're not. You you think God is with you, but I'm telling you, God's not. And then, then we get the same thing just phrased differently. Hate evil and love good. It's called a chiasmus where they... They, are, they switch the words around in the poetry to form an emphasis. Hate evil and love good and let justice prevail at the gate. Then it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will have pity on the remnant of Joseph. You see, Amos believed that justice was the key to alignment with God. Justice, biblical justice. This is what justice is. Enough for everybody. <laughs> Enough for everybody. We don't exploit people, right? Enough for everybody. That's the key. That's the key. You want to be aligned with God in this world? Then you seek a just world. That's what it means. Actions that end injustice. Actions that produce peace. The active work of restoring justice. Equity for people. Right relationships. This is the very heart of God for Amos. And you skip ahead to Amos 21, 24. We get this very famous passage. And it says this. I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no pleasure in your solemnities. Even though you bring me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Your stall-fed communion offering, I won't look upon them. Take away from me your noisy songs, the melodies of your harps. I won't listen to them. In other words, I don't care. Like, when you're acting this way towards one another, what what do your sacrifices mean to me? It's like the ancient Egyptians who said, what, are you going to go sacrifice to the crocodile and everything's okay? It's just as futile, right? It's just as problematic. So you're going to go and, and, and hang out and sacrifice before the lion? What good is that? You're, just, you're bringing upon yourself disaster. He says, so young, I'm not going to listen to this. Rather, let justice surge like floodwaters. Let justice surge and righteousness like an unfailing stream. So we need a flood of justice, this, this, this thing that wipes out unjust systems, unjust practices, that lays bare the oppression of the weak and the poor, that says this is what's happening. And that can be, when I use the word violent, that is a hard thing to do because there's, a, there's an inward, like internal, 
like violence to myself that I experience because I have to say, what part am I in it? What part am I in it? And a river of righteousness, I love the language here. I think of a steady flow. Like unjust systems are hard work, hard work. But what righteous, what we want, and, and what, what Amos is saying is we need this river, this steady flow of mercy and goodness that nourishes and strengthens every person in the community, everyone, regardless of what they believe, regardless of they, they're a part of this community, and for the community to be healthy, that's what has to happen. So here's the thing I don't want us to miss. What is it that hope demands of us if we're going to keep it alive? Well, here's the thing. I think what Amos tells us in this poetry, in Amos's day, in Amos's way, is that hope lives in a flood of justice, not a flurry of religion. And, and we are all about a flurry of religion. Like, that's just, it feels good, all the music. Right? There's something that feels good about going to church, logging in, whatever it might be. But that, that doesn't produce hope. It doesn't produce hope for this world. No, hope demands a flood of justice, a community committed to living this out in their everyday normal lives, to work for justice and righteousness real quickly. Some things in our everyday normal lives to live this out, like a flood of justice requires a downpour of knowledge. You gotta have knowledge. Ignorance isn't an excuse. <laughs> Right? We cannot bury our head in the sands. We, we cannot be a place that says, well, this whole world is just headed to hell in a handbasket anyway. Why does it matter? Like, I just don't have that theology. I have a theology that the world is progressing towards heaven on earth. That's the metaphor. That's the beauty. That's what we're doing here. So we press in. We move forward. So we have to get educated, and we have to understand the roots of injustice, the living systems that are in place in our cultures, in our, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, where there's exclusion, where there's oppression. We have to understand that. We need to know what the great injustices of our days is. And we can name a whole list of them. We talk about th like five in our five unacceptables. I think of three right off the top that like, like we've, I mean, the church has just made it a hobby out of othering, right? Sexism racism, homophobia. If there's three things that the church has just excelled at doing while it's facilitated all its religious practices, it's those three things. And that's why we identify those three in particular because we want to see those things rewritten in the body of Christ, in Christianity. So we have to know these things. A flood of justice requires compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy. It's so easy. It's so easy to look at, at, at the oppressed and say, they're lazy, I, had the, I, I didn't have anything growing up, and I did it all myself. I had the opportunities. They just need to work harder. It's so easy to turn the, 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 the victim into the perpetrator. But the compassion and mercy of Jesus says, no, we will not succumb to that evil. We won't do it. And a river of righteousness means that we have to have a flow of engagement. Right? We have to be engaged in the work as a church. We have to stand for human-centered public policies. We have to think about others. and their, That's what I love about this new partner in hope, this ride to end Alzheimer's. I love that. Like, what a great thing for us to be a part of, and the fact that we have someone in our church heritage that's in a part of this. Like This is engagement. It's not public policy engagement, but it's engagement nonetheless. Helen Keller said this. She said, until the great mass of the people shall be filled with a sense of responsibility for each other's welfare... Social justice can never be attained. And don't, some of you are going to freak out social justice. Like just, I don't even like any, we don't need any <laughs> qualifier. Like justice, right? I understand the, the word and, and some people freak out about it, but it's just, it's biblical justice is social justice. The idea of a society that looks like heaven on earth, the most just idea, vision. Helen Keller says, until we start thinking about the welfare of other people, it's never going to happen. So we humbly enter the activist arena. Humbly. We walk humbly with our God, with one another. We're missing that sometimes. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, human progress, right, uh, is never automatic or inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. It's an engagement that's required. 
And then finally, a river of righteousness requires a current of empowerment. The engagement in justice work, the engagement, it has to be this development of empowerment. We're empowering people. We have to learn to help without hurting, right? We have to know the difference between relief and development. Both are vital. Both are vital in when we're combating and looking at systemic injustice. There has to be relief systems that deal with the immediate needs, but there also has to be development that deals with the the stuff that produces equity and long-term health and sustainment. We need both of those. Both are needed, but we have to understand the difference. Like charity, what most of what church does, and there's nothing wrong with this, is an engine of relief. It's an engine for the relief of the hurting and the oppressed. It's a space that the church can hold very well. But see, justice is the engine for social development, right? That development that eliminates oppression, poverty, and violence, right? So one, like, like it comes in as like a balm on the oppressed, those who have suffered violence, those who are in poverty. Like there's a, there's a relieving of suffering, but an elevation out of the suffering of true healing comes through the development work. And justice produces development, and development produces justice. It's that, it's that relationship. So we all as individuals, and, and, and remember this series is really about us as a church together, we should support relief and development. We should support that with our wealth, our wealth of our knowledge, our time, our energy, our money. This is our Partners in Hope strategy that we as a community are coming around and we're unrolling. And it's a continuation of the heart of this church over the last 25 years to say where are the spaces and who can we partner with that are doing the development work, that are doing the relief work. Because we will never write the five unacceptables. If you're new, we have these five unacceptables. You can read about them on our website. Like We'll never rewrite those by ourselves. It's impossible. But when we have good partnerships, we can do that. And you know what's so powerful about this? Nobody wakes up on the day and says, you know what, I want to be a hateful and violent person. <laughs> like, how many of y'all woke up this morning and were just like, just give me the opportunity, Lord, to hate somebody and be violent, and it would just be a great day? Nobody wants to do that. But yet we know in our hearts, hatred and violence sit there. And I believe this deeply, that Hatred and violence cannot survive in a heart that's flooded with justice and filled with righteousness. You know, I've never had to be violent in society. You don't want to know why I've never had to be violent in society? Because I trained in the martial arts, and I can see it before it happens, so I just avoid it. (laughs) You know why I've never had to be violent in society? Because I've never had to worry about where my next meal would come from. I was privileged enough to, I never had to worry. I never had to worry would I ever be able to get an education. I never wondered, are my kids going to eat? I never wondered, am I, am I going to be falsely arrested? I never ever had that thought. So I didn't, I don't, I've never had to be violent because I've always been a part of a system that was pretty just towards me. <laughs> and so I need a poetic voice to say, well, that hasn't been my experience. Because I think that's how violence and oppression ends is when we see this just and righteous world. And that's why I think it's so pervasive throughout our biblical poets, if I can use that word. And that's the language that we get. So as we wrap up today, just a little late, we want to sing a song and give you the opportunity to just ponder what's God inviting you into today. I believe as a church that this series is about helping us understand our commitments to meet the demands of hope. We have two huge signs in our atrium that says hope is here. And if we are not actively engaging in the justice work, if we're not creating righteousness, we should take those signs down and say happiness is here. Goosebumps are here. Laughter is here. I mean, those are all wonderful things. But like James says, like, how does that save anybody? How does that faith save anybody. James isn't talking about heaven and eternity. He's talking about the plight of the widow and the orphan. We've just missed it. It's like, how can your faith, oh, I have faith, oh, go well, be wonderful, and good luck with that. But we don't make the sacrifices. We don't listen to the hard messages. We don't wrestle with it. We don't let the poets of ancient Israel remind us that I don't believe in the active, destructive force of the divine. I don't think that. But I do think there is a natural consequence to a decision to ignore justice in a culture, in a society, in a heart that produces and brings about death. 
So I hope that you sense God inviting us as a community to say, nope, that's, that's going to be a commitment. That's who we are. But then as an individual, maybe, maybe read the book of Amos this week. I gave you a good 20 minutes to kind of be able to understand what's going on in there. If, you need, if you're having a trouble sleeping, you can re-listen to that 20 minutes. We'll put you out right away. You know, isn't that funny, Jess? <laughs> maybe just read the book of Amos. It's nine chapters. It, it takes, wouldn't take very long. It's not like Isaiah. I'm not giving you serious homework. <laughs> just think about the poetry and what it's saying and don't worry about like what it's saying about God because we've grown as people for the last 2,500 3,000 years we know a little bit more about the divine and how the world works than Amos did so we can like take a nice deep breath right we can dig into it I'd encourage you to find a resource read a book get a podcast read an article that, that talks about one of the five unacceptables poverty spiritual emptiness othering go and find a book and say, well, like, I'm just going to listen to a podcast that helps me engage with these things. Human trafficking. Like, what are these things? And how do I, how can I participate? What do I need to know about these living systems that exist? Illiteracy. What is it? What is the, what is literacy and education? What are the barriers to education in, in our state? What are the barriers to education in America? What are the barriers to education around the world? What is the power of education? How can education save? Right? And if I, if I believe and let my faith drive me, like these are the questions you ask and find a resource and just like soak in it a little bit. Get in that river of righteousness. Let that flood of justice pour over you. And then here's the tough one. For those of you that are like gold star, like you know the books of the Bible in order, people, you know? Like you don't even have to bring your Bible anymore to church. Like I got it down. Here's the really tough stuff is will you just maybe take some time and just prayerfully consider what, what am I doing <laughs> that maybe is producing injustice or unrighteousness to my neighbor? Like, how am I living? What are the decisions I'm making? Where am I shopping? What am I doing that is just, I've just kind of sunk into this pattern and there are things that I, I, I know better so I should do better kind of thinking. And maybe just consider that beauty of conviction, not condemnation. We don't live in condemnation. That's that's a tool of evil. But we live in a space of conviction. I want to become a better parent, a better father, a better pastor. I want to become a better neighbor. I want to become better to live out the fullness of God in me. The only way I do that is through conviction, through this, this, this feeling that like, ooh, maybe I missed it there. Maybe I produced a wound there. So maybe spend some time on that. Let's sing this song and then please go get your kids so the children's ministry don't hate me too much today. As you head out this morning, take a few moments out in the atrium with one another. You already missed your reservation. Don't worry about it. It's already burnt, whatever you have in the crock pot, but maybe just spend a minute or two saying hi. Find somebody you don't know and just maybe be courageous and say hi, introduce yourself, be a wonderful first step to community creating. Um, stop by the Ride to End Alzheimer's. Check it out. There's ways to volunteer there. You don't have to ride a cycle if you don't do that, but you can do other ways. And, and do check out the camp opportunities to volunteer. We we want to have the most loving and inclusive camp in all of Colorado. Like, that's the goal of the camp. We're not too concerned about having the best climbing walls. <laughs> We're not too concerned about having the best. That's what we want to be, the most loving and inclusive camp uh, where kids learn about peacemaking on the playground. And what does it mean to love all your classmates? What does it mean to love everybody in your world? And so that's what we're creating. It's important. So I would encourage you to check that out as well, all right? And if you, listen, you, you all definitely shaved a year or two off of purgatory today. Uh, <laughs> you endured uh, to the end, as, as the scripture says. You endured to the end. So good, good on you. And the people who were you know, caring for and investing into your children, they shaved like a decade off of purgatory today. So that's, that's good. That's really good. So, all right. If you want to open up your arms to receive our blessing for the week, if this is weird for you, don't do it. It's totally cool. All right, here we go. This week, may the poetry of Amos open your mind to the gaps in your experiences and the experience of others. And may your eyes be open to the oppression, violence, and injustice that exists all around us. And may what you see bring a heavy spirit and a deep burden to your heart. But in the weight of those moments, may divine love be a source of strength and divine hope be a source of energy to your soul.
And may that strength and energy give you a deep resolve to grow in knowledge, compassion, mercy, and engagement. And may we, as Crossroads Church, commit ourselves to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And may this commitment not be demonstrated in a flurry of religious activities, but rather in our commitment to keep hope alive by being a flood of justice and a river of righteousness to our local community, to our country, and around the world. And so let us seek good and not evil that we might truly live. Then the absolute, the divine love, God, will be with us as we claim. Amen. Have an awesome week, everybody.